0: Good morning, all. Good morning. To read again what Brother Sawyer read well for us, Second Timothy three verses sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks or the last month, you'll know that the last time I preached, I also use this verse, and that is because this is part of the exact same sermon mini-series. As you know, overall, I'm working through a Defending the Faith apologetic sermon series. The first two sermons I did is Why We Believe in God. We argued from the case of morality and then of logic and of science. And now uh, this is the second part of Why We Believe in the Bible. There is a God, and there is, and He has spoken. What are those books? What is this Bible, and why do we trust it? Now, in the first part of this sermon series, about a month ago, if you recall... Uh, the main issue I dealt with was why do we trust the Bible? Why do we consider it to be authoritative? And uh, the answer that we gave is most simply, we consider it as authoritative and it is authoritative because God inspired it and within it we hear his voice. Okay, God inspired it and within it we hear his voice and the voice of the shepherd. There is a beauty, there is a unity, and there is a power or efficacy to the scriptures that is only of God. Truly, this is written by the hand of God. We could even add further this book was also written by eyewitnesses who bore witness to supernatural events which are prophesied millennia before, and even more. This is a blessed, blessed book. It is authority in the fact that God had inspired it, and within it, we hear his voice. So, that was the first part. Really, in many ways, going to be filling that out a little further and asking some more specific questions. Uh, on the topics of what we call canon and manuscripts. And if that's not familiar for you, I can, I'll can i fill those out a little bit later. But most simply, the word canon means which books make up the Bible, which books don't or do make up the Bible. Should they or should they not be included in what we preach on, what we teach on, and what we submit our lives to? And then the manuscripts is, okay, so uh, assuming, which we do, that there are certain books in the Bible, how do we know that we have what was originally written? So why can we trust the uh pages that we have in front of it. So those that are that is those questions. But then again, why this sermon? Why get into these some of these technical details? Well, as 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, uh this book is what is for our maturity, that we may grow complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. And uh since this book is so foundational to our lives, I want us to be persuaded in every way that this is a book which can be trusted, which should be trusted, and which we should build our lives upon. This is why in preaching, we don't uh, exposit Shakespeare or whatever book I'm enjoying at the moment. And uh, you think that's just completely a joke, but I was listening to a podcast of a pastor I appreciate a lot. And he, was, he sat down with, uh, maybe he said the most liberal pastor in Minneapolis, and the pastor there was explaining that a lot of his parishioners were coming up and asking him why he didn't preach or use more of the text of Emily Dickinson poems. Um. I guess, needless to say, we're not growing that route. <laughs> we don't think Emily Dickinson is uh, inspired. So, as in the same way the scriptures are. But I do think these are important questions and these are issues that people are wrestling with. right? Which books should be the foundation of our life and which books should we preach from and teach from? That is why when we preach, we primarily expound the word of God. Right? We take a couple verses and explain what they mean. I realize that's kind of strange to say as I preach a topical sermon, <laughs> um, but uh, I, we consider this an anomaly, and, but I think there's a place for that, more explaining uh, just what a, what we believe on a specific subject. And uh, again, my prayer is, I really hope this stabilizes your convictions on this book as it builds a foundation of your life, and then also grants you a confidence um, that, that you can use as you tell the unbelieving world about uh, what this book says. So let me pray for that, and then we'll talk about canon. Father in heaven, I'm just so grateful. So grateful for your word. Just remember being a young man and then you saved me through your word and then I felt awash and confused about what life was about and your word told me. Your word told us. How then shall we live? And uh, it's in these blessed pages. Oh God, may you keep stabilizing our convictions and our belief in this book. And may it even showcase itself in the way we read and apply it and live by it. I pray as I even raise questions that maybe some people have never even thought about, didn't even know were issues, pray they wouldn't destabilize them, but just further stabilize them. And this is God's word. Lord, even equip us as the heart of this sermon series is to more faithfully share your message with others. And when they have very legitimate questions that they've wrestled with, that we'd be able to give an answer for the hope that it's within us. So, Father, may you grant that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. So the issue of canon, again, in our passage, the passage goes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. The question of canon is asking the question, what then is all scripture? Okay, What is the all scripture by which we are to submit our hearts and our lives and our church to? Now this is how our church answers it, and I think it is a good answer in the statement of faith. This is what we say. All that now needs to be known of God, man, and salvation has been revealed in God's word in the scriptures in the 66 books of the Bible. Just most simply, in the 66 books of the Bible which is to distill that a little further, we believe there are 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. In the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, and in the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, if you have a Bible in your hand, most likely, those are the books that are in there. The question of canon, though, is asking, but why these books? Okay. Even in the community that we're living in, many people's Bibles will have a couple more. I just found... Uh, I just found a book that one of, someone in the church had from when they were a Roman Catholic and I opened it up and there were about ten other books added. Okay? If you're, if you know what I'm talking about, this is called the Apocrypha. These books would be 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, I think I'm pronouncing it right, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Tobias, Judith Wisdom, and then some other ones. There's like a longer ending to the book of Daniel. There's a story of like a dragon in there. And then also, uh, there's some additions to the book of Esther as well as a couple other additions the question of canon is asking so why not these or why not others uh, apparently they still are finding christian writings from the 1st and 2nd centuries you got like for example the shepherd of hermes or hermes or the didache why not those why are those books from even the 1st and 2nd century not in our bible why not others why not less this is the question of canon. Now, I think there's this temptation, maybe when we hear this question, to say, well, I don't really know if this matters. But uh it it matters a lot. It really matters a lot. Because if we as Christian people are missing about 12 books of the Bible from the way we're governing our lives and in the way we preach, that's a significant issue. If God has inspired 12 other books that we need to submit to and we're not submitting to them, that's a significant problem. Or from the other side, if we're following and submitting Books that aren't actually of God, as if they are scripture, that's a problem as well. And we're saying that they're scripture, right? So this is an important question to ask. So now, the word canon, maybe you're unfamiliar with that, but the word canon is, comes from first from the Latin, then from Greek, and it actually goes all the way back to Hebrew, but in the Greek the word is kanon, basically it just meant originally a straight rod, which is used as for measuring, Okay. A straight rod, a measuring stick essentially. In Greek it's a rule or it's a standard. The official the official standard of measurement. eighteen twenty eight Webster's dictionary, I thought, put it really well describing it from the Hebrew as well. This word kanon is deduced from the Hebrew word for cane, reed, or measuring rod. What it means is to set, to establish, or to form a rule. In other words, that which is set or established. Okay, that which is set or established. And what that means for us is, we call that the books that make up our Bible, those books by which all other books are measured by. Does that make sense? The set, the standard, the books by which all other books are measured by, the books of our Bible. Then, asking the question again, how then do we determine which books make up the canon? First and most importantly, looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, right? all scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God or God-breathed? So most fundamentally, the question to ask, and this is somewhat begging the question at this point, but the question to ask is, uh, which books are given by inspiration of God? Which books were breathed by God? That is the question of what books are inspired or or are part of the canon. Uh, I will say up front, even as I work through this, uh, I read a book by a brother called Michael Kruger. If you want to know, really get really detailed on it, you can read his book as well. I think it's excellent. And I mention that because... Uh, To give credit where credit is due, he was very shaping uh, for me as I thought through this, as he even argued from the scriptures. So I just want to honor that. But as we ask that question is, which books make up the canon? Again, it's those which are given by inspiration of God. But most basically, when we think about that question, since it is God's word, and God's word is the ultimate authority, these books must be self-authenticating. And I talked about that a little bit when we talked about just general authority. But because it is God's word, the ultimate authority by which we determine all truth, they must be self-authenticating. Hebrews 6, 13, actually, not talking about the scriptures themselves, but reasons this way, in a similar concept, this is what it says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Hear that? When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. In other words, who else could God appeal to to swear to? of who he is. He, there's no one else. He, he, is, he is God, so he swore by himself in the same way. This is God's book. What else could it appeal to to prove its own, its own worth and its own merit? I think I talked about this again last time I preached, but really I think the verse is super helpful where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Primarily, I think we believe the Bible because we hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of Christ in these pages. In the same way, we know this specific book is a part of the scripture because we hear the voice of the shepherd within it. Okay, so that's just the first layer. And this makes sense. So Romans 1.20, this is talking about nature. I'll connect it for you in a moment. For since the creation of the world, God, his invisible attributes are clearly seeing, being understood by the things that are made. So in other words, you see God's handiwork in nature and in creation. So the question is, if nature so clearly showcases the hand of God, how much more the written word? The written word will showcase the hand of God. John Murray said, If the heavens declare the glory of God and therefore bear witness to their divine creator, the scripture as God's handiwork must also bear the imprints of his divine authorship. And I say, Amen. Now, at this point, let's get a little more specific because I realize any person could just pick up a book and say, ah, I sense God's voice in this and therefore it becomes scripture. So we have to get a little more detailed. So what are some of the more specific attributes of canon or attributes of what makes a book part of the Bible? First, beauty and excellency. okay So beauty and excellency. This is not that there is an aesthetic beauty to them per se, which there is too, but this is not that point. It's that there is a spiritual beauty to the truths that they contain. The Psalms talks about this. The law of the Lord is perfect, right? The commandment of the Lord are pure, or how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, or your testimonies are wonderful, O Lord. right? He's sensing the, the the beauty and the excellencies within the scriptures that he's reading. This was really early recognized by some of the earliest church fathers. can't remember if he's from the 2nd or 3rd century, but Chrysostom stated this about the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is nothing counterfeit because it is uttering a voice which is sweet and more profitable than any harp or any music. This is something which is great and sublime. He's like, I know this is God's word because it is uttering a voice so sweet and more profitable than any other harp or any music. Another brother, when talking about why he believes the Hebrews is the scriptures, this is what he says, the majestic glory glory of Christ shines forth from the pages of the epistle to the Hebrews so brightly that no believer who ever reads it seriously would ever want to question its place in the canon. I say amen. So that's the first attribute. I think any book which is divinely inspired will have a a beauty and a, a beauty and an excellency to it. Secondly, second attribute, it will have uh, efficacy and or power. That way you can translate it as power. An efficacy or a power. Any book of the Bible will be a book that changes hearts because it is of God which gives wisdom, which gives light and which gives truth. Hebrews talks about itself in this way, about the Bible. The word of God is living and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Okay? This is what God's word will do. If it is truly God's word, it will pierce, it will change, it will have an effect. As a brother said, this is not the Bible is not something to be judged as much as it is, as it is the thing that does the judging. Right? It is not something to be judged as much as that which does the judging. And I think we could say whenever we, we've interacted or met with the Bible by the Spirit, this is the case. It does have its effect. Then third attribute, the unity of the scriptures. Okay, so the unity of the Bible. Does the book hold complete unity with the other books of the Bible? If it is the same God who wrote it all, then it will have the same message. It will sing the same song. This is what the Bereans were looking for. So in Acts 17, when Paul came and he was preaching the gospel, then it said, this is what the Bereans did. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now this wasn't to find out whether or not it was scripture per se, but they were looking at scripture to find out whether or not this message was of God. Does that make sense? They were looking for the unity because if it was of God, then it would have unity. Now so I think those are the overarching maybe most important categories, its beauty, its power, and its unity. But then you could ask a subset of questions and it would be, okay, has this, this book been accepted by the church as a whole? Okay, has there been a broad acceptance by the universal church? Now, I think to be clear on this, I don't think this means that we're saying that the church is what makes the Bible. I think there's this conviction by even some Christians, that basically what happened in the 3rd century, this guy named Constantine came along and the church decided which books were in the Bible and then that book became the Bible. Okay, I think that's the conviction. No, we would say, and I think this is what God would say, is that the book of the Bible was God's inspired word even as the ink was drying on the papyrus. Even as the ink was drying on the papyrus, this was God's inspired word. But the reason I even want to bring out the fact or the thought that the church as a whole accepted it is to say this. The voice of the shepherd and of God and of the spirit is so clear in these books that millions of sheep throughout the ages have heard the shepherd's voice in them. Okay? Across continents, across church backgrounds, across many languages, millions to billions of sheep are saying, I hear the shepherd's voice in these books. So I find a lot of comfort in that, and I think that is really encouraging. The church didn't make the Bible. The Bible made the church, but the church recognized it. Okay, The church just recognized it. Finally, uh, an attribute, another subcategory. The question is, does it come from either the, a prophetic or an apostolic era? Okay, So is there a prophetic or an apostolic authority to the book that we are reading? This is a way of saying, is it written by a prophet or apostle or during the times of the apostles and prophets and thereby having their authority? Maybe you're unfamiliar with those, that categories so of prophets and apostles. Basically, apostles and prophets in the scriptures are, were the authoritative voice by which God spoke to his people. Okay. So prophets and then apostles were the authoritative voice with which God spoke to his people. So Ephesians 2.20, this is how it words it. The church was built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. See that language? So there's a foundational term built on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So I think there's a temptation like, well, Jesus is the only foundation. Well, what Paul is saying here is Jesus is the most important part of the foundation, the cornerstone. But the foundation is the apostles and the prophets built on Jesus. Okay, So the prophets and the apostles were the foundation. This is also uh, in Hebrews one one. This is talking about the prophets. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by who, by the prophets. He spoke to his people by the prophets. They were his voice. But he has and ha, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And how did he speak to us by his son? While well, Jesus came in person, but then he also speaks to us through the apostles by the Spirit. John 14, 26, this is what he, Jesus says to them, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The apostles were meant to lay the foundation for the church to build upon. This is even further established in, uh, as one of the requirements for being an apostle in Acts 1:21 through 22. Remember, Judas had just hung himself. And uh, they're trying to decide who is going to replace Judas as an apostle. And one of the requirements was this. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us by the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So our requirement to be part of the foundation laying part of the apostles was that you had seen Jesus from the beginning of his ministries to the end. This was a requirement. And not only that, but you had had a specific calling. Paul, though, you may be wondering about Paul, though. We would say that Paul did have a very specific calling by Jesus Christ and actually saw did see Jesus resurrected and that he saw him in a vision. So Paul was a special case, but a particular one. Now, this foundation of the apostle and the prophets, this was understood very early. Even Ignatius, he's the bishop of Antioch. He was a disciple of the apostle John. This is what he said. He said, I am not commanding you as Peter and Paul did. They were apostles. I am condemned. So, even the first generation after the apostles were saying, hey, there's a distinction here, okay? They're apostles. They speak divinely, whereas I am condemned. Now, this, this is a quick side point, but I think it's an interesting question to ask. Okay, but what about the books that were not written by apostles? Like, specifically written by apostles, as in the case of Mark, or as in the case of Luke, or Hebrews? And the answer is that these books still had apostolic origins and that they were from the era of the apostles and came from apostolic sources, approved by the apostles. For example, Mark's sources were, Hebrew, were Peter. Peter That's where he got it from. Uh, Luke's sources obviously were Paul and probably some of the other apostles. He may have even used Mark, the Gospel of Mark. The book of Hebrews has always been the most interesting one in church history, trying to determine uh, whether or not it is a canon. But even the book of Hebrews, so in Hebrews 2, two 3, and 4... He said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first was spoken to us by our Lord and was delivered to us by those who heard him? In other words, he's saying, like, I know those who heard Jesus Christ in person. In other words, I know the apostles. Also, in Hebrews chapter 13, he claims to know Timothy as well. So he's very much, the author, whoever he is, is very much in connection with the apostolic ministry, which is why I think the church accepted it, because it is the word of God. In summary, we believe a book should be in the Bible because it has its own divine qualities, most fundamentally, its beauty, its power, and its unity. Two, a subcategory of this, has it been received by the church as a whole? And uh, finally, does it have prophetic or apostolic roots? Okay. So one of the ways, maybe I'll just walk through how we would apply this to a specific book. So Pastor Brandon is preaching through 1 Thessalonians. Okay. So how do we know... That First Thessalonians is meant to be part of the biblical canon, right? Why are we spending weeks to months trying to learn about this book? So this is the way we would work through it. Does it bear divine qualities? Okay. Does the book of First Thessalonians bear divine qualities? Well, first off, does it have a spiritual beauty? We would say 100%. It is beauty in its; it has great beauty in its instruction on the return of Christ, the love of the church, the need for discipleship and the work of Christ among the Thessalonians. So it has beauty. It has unity. It is completely unified with the rest of the scriptures in Christ and his coming in judgment at the end of the ages. Completely unified in this message. And second and finally in its power... Its plea for purity in 1 Thessalonians 4, I personally know many people, myself included, have found much freedom in the instructions there on sexual purity and holiness. And many of you know those verses because you read them and applied them and were changed by them, as you'll hear read. But not only this, even the calling to uh, endure till the end because Jesus Christ is returning has stabilized many Christians throughout the millennium. This book has a power and has an efficacy to it. Also, this book has been universally received. Name a church denomination in this world and they would say First Thessalonians is part of the scriptures. In a way, all of us are saying we hear the voice of the shepherd so obviously in this book. Finally, the apostolic roots are quite obvious, right? In that it was directly written by the hand of Apostle Paul. So again, yes. First Thessalonians is in the scripture. And so next time Pastor Brandon preaches, we're good to go. We can (laughs) can rest in that. (laughs) Should I preach this first? Okay, you guys were worried about that? Yeah. Now I think there's, before I move on, I think there's two maybe particular questions that people normally have on this question. Uh, Number one How do we know or is canon closed? Okay. In other words, are there books being written that we should slide into canon as well? Right? Did someone pen a book? I don't know. A year ago, however great a book it is, and should it be part of the Bible that we preach? We would say, well, I mean, some people think that. Okay. I think our, yes, as you said, brother, yes, absolutely not. <laughs> no, I'm not disagreeing with you. We do not believe that those books should go in the Bible. We do believe that canon is closed. And really, most simply, the answer for why we believe canon is closed is because the era, of the foundational era of the apostles has ended. Okay, the foundational era of the apostles has ended. All the apostles, the original ones who were called and divinely appointed from the, with the authority, having seen Jesus literally in person, they have all died and passed away. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 is helpful in this one as well. God, who at various times in various ways spoke to the fathers in times past by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. That is often and rightly been acknowledged that there is a last days, kind of like that is very an era of finality to it. He has spoken to us by his Son through the apostles and they have laid the foundation. But also in this, Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, I'll actually just turn there, revelation 22 18 through 19 this is what John says for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to these things God will add to him the plagues that are written in this books and if anyone book and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book now I think probably most directly the application here would be to the book of Revelation. But I think it is God's wise providence that the last book of the Bible to be written by the last apostle who was alive finished with these literal words. And I think God wanted us to see this as basically his conclusion to, this this is the book upon which we, we will build our foundation. So again, absolutely we do think that the canon is closed primarily because the era of the apostles has ended and then passages like this. Then, secondly, I promised I would get to it. I think I did. But the question of the Apocrypha. Okay? So, the Apocrypha, if you grew up again as a Roman Catholic, probably in your Bible, you had these specific books. Why do we not have it in our Bible? Okay? I'm guessing most, every Bible in here does not include those 12 books. I would say, well, most basically, I think these books fail in all three areas. I think uh, they do not have the divine attributes of the beauties, the power, the excellencies, and the and the unity. I think there's contradictions between them and the other books of the Bible. But even building on this, number two, the cons- there was an issue of consensus. The vast majority of Jews, or maybe I just say the majority of Jews, even at the time of Jesus, did not accept these books to be part of the, of the Hebrew canon, of the Hebrew Bible. And not only this, it's interesting... But the Roman Catholic Church actually waited until less than 500 years ago to officially acknowledge them as part of the Bible. Which I think is an interesting point. Okay, Even the Roman Catholic Church, the one church that really accepts them, waited 1,550 years to say, well, we think these are part of the Bible. And many of their saints and leaders of the Catholic Church would not have felt, even some popes would not have felt that they should have been considered. So I guess all that to say, across all of the world... There has been at least a substantial, if not majority, of sheep who do not hear the voice of the shepherd in these books, and I think that should be concerning. Uh, third, I don't think they come from the prophetic era. Between the so again, maybe I didn't explain this, but most of the apocrypha comes. So Malachi, our last book in the Bible, Second Chronicles ends about 400 years BC before Christ, and then Matthew starts up right around the birth of Jesus. Okay. So those 400 years in there, the Apocrypha basically fills in those years. That's where it's from. And uh, I think our conviction is that that was not the prophetic era. Therefore, they don't have prophetic prophetic, authority. But I would even go one step further in my concern uh, in terms of I don't think Jesus thought these part, books were part of the Bible either. Here's why. Almost every Old Testament book is quoted by Christ or the apostles. Besides that, so that's the only one it wasn't. But almost every Old Testament book is quoted by Christ or the Apostles over 295 times. The Apocrypha is not quoted once. okay? Not once across all the pages of the New Testament does Jesus or the Apostles appeal to the Apocrypha to make any point of which I think they did not believe that it was part of the Scriptures. Uh, I have some other thoughts too regarding what he said in Luke 11:51. If you're interested in that, you can follow up with me on that. But... That's, I just don't think Jesus believed that the apocryphal is part of the scriptures. Therefore, though they may be interesting and they may be an intriguing read to you, we do not think they should be part of the scriptures. And that seems clear. But just overall, an application before I shift to the manuscripts. uh, Again, it's a pretty obvious one. Let us read this blessed book. May it be the measuring rod by which everything else you read and hear on radio or TV or from anyone else is measured and uh, may you have a fresh feel to know all of what the Lord has said. And uh, there's a lot of books here that you can really, uh, really study and come to know what does His Word say. All right, next question. This will be a little shorter, but the question of the text itself. So the issue of manuscripts. This one is uh, this one's really fresh for me because just literally two weeks ago, uh, I was talking with someone in Little Falls about the things of God. And it was really interesting because he acknowledged that the Bible, that the scriptures, he's like, yeah, I, I guess I could see that they were probably inspired by God. But then he said, yeah, but I think that scribes made so many errors in copying and transmitting it that I don't think we have anything close to what the original said. So this is a pretty prominent view, okay? And uh, again, I read into this just literally two weeks ago. Uh, if you ever talk with Muslims, they believe much in the same way. Uh, apparently the Quran actually says that the Gospels, the Injil, was actually from God originally, so the four Gospels, but they would then say that it got corrupted since then by scribes who were making changes, okay? So how we do believe that the Bible was inspired and absolutely the Word of God, but how can we trust that we actually have what was originally said, okay? So our statement of faith continues. All that now needs to be known of God, man, and salvation has been revealed in God's Word, the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible. I like this phrase. These documents have come to us preserved by the Spirit as fully faithful representations of the original manuscripts. Okay? Um, I think increasingly I'm finding the importance of having lines like this in your statement of faith. Okay? These documents have come to us preserved by the Spirit as fully faithful representations of the original manuscripts. I guess overall what we're trying to say here in the statement of faith is there is God through providential means has kept his book for us to be able to read fully faithful representations. And uh, let me talk a little bit though about some of those providential means because those are normally helpful in apologetic scenarios. So first thing to acknowledge to someone who's struggling with a question like that, so has the Bible been corrupted over time? is we would acknowledge that we don't have the original manuscripts. Okay, We would acknowledge we don't have the original scroll that Paul wrote on. And I, I think this used to be vague for me. I probably just assumed that there was some glowing vault somewhere where I could find a letter to the Thessalonians that I could go and open and just double-check. right? Um, which would be really cool, but that's not the case. Uh, but that view is very wrong and frankly impossible. Okay? The material that it was written on could not have survived being handed around and shared among the churches. Okay, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians on a papyrus, most likely, and when he sent it to Thessalonians, Thessalonica, it could not have survived over 2,000 years being passed around. Fair enough. Okay. And I think that makes sense because, I mean, if you literally had the Bible written to you, I'm guessing you would want to read it. And uh, pass it around. And uh, others would want to read it as well. In Colossians, it's actually even commanded that the letter is passed around. Uh, Colossians 4.16. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. In other words, this is scripture. Make sure the Laodiceans see it as well. The interesting thing is, they didn't have photocopiers, right? So what do you do with that? But I think it's actually way cooler than a photocopier the way God kept his word. Over thousands of years and probably hundreds of thousands of copiers, God, by his spirit, made sure that his word has come down to us. And though he used human means, our God has made sure that we have his blessed words. Okay, Just saying that up front. So this is likely what happened in the case of uh, a manuscript being written and then passed around. So in the case of, let's say, Philippians, for example. Okay, So take the book of Philippians. Paul is probably in prison, most likely in Rome, we think. And he's sitting in prison. He needs some financial help. He needs some encouragement. So this man named Epaphroditus shows up to him with a gift. This is all in Philippians. With a gift from the Philipp- Philippian church and encouragement from them. So Paul receives that gift, is blessed, and then wants to give an update and encourage them, encouragement to them in the form of the letter of what we call to the Philippians. So he probably took that letter. He wrote it on a manuscript He gave it to Epaphroditus, your messenger, he called him, and probably sent Epaphroditus back to deliver this manuscript to the church in Philippi. Then, they got it, and I'm guessing right away they probably recognized, okay, this is from the Apostle Paul, this has apostolic authority, this is the word of God. And so they were very blessed by it, and they thought, well, I think the church of Thessalonica should get this one as well. Of course, I'm, making that up at this point I don't know exactly how they did it but probably something like this and they thought well before I send that letter away to Thessalonica maybe we should make a copy okay this is where it gets interesting so they probably had people who made multiple copies and maybe even more copies that they could then spread around the Christian community that letter went to Thessalonica then maybe someone from Colossae came to Thessalonica and said hey this is really great we need this as well and so they made a copy and then they had their own, right? And it continues. Over time, though, the original one probably wore out. Which is fine. But the original one worn out. And the reason it's fine is because they had all those other copies. Now, over millenniums, or over century, first decades, but then centuries, then millenniums, as these wore out, more and more and more were made. More and more and more were made and spread around the world. Now, here's the challenge, and this was what the guy I was trying to raise that I was talking to. He was saying, okay, so God may have perfectly inspired the first book or the first letter, but he doesn't promise that he's going to perfectly inspire every person who copies it. Right? So for example, if I give you this and I make you go copy it, though it's perfect, you might make a mistake. And we actually do see mistakes in many of the manuscripts that we have. So the case he was trying to make is like, well, all those mistakes that were made in the copies, therefore we don't actually know what was in the original Bible. With all these copies, how do we know what the original one said? And I think this is a pretty simple answer. It is, It was God's good gift to us and his providential ordering over the millenniums that the way he ordered it is that here we are, thousands of years later, And we have thousands upon thousands of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, which we can compare across each other. This is part of his keeping his word throughout the millenniums. In other words, what I'm saying here, if someone made a mistake, we are, and even people in eras past, were able to compare and contrast these manuscripts with what these manuscripts say as well to see what was the original. Is that vague? Okay. They were able to compare if there was supposedly a mistake made in this one, they were able to compare it with the other 20 to see whether or not this mistake was actually in the original. I really like the analogy someone gave. Basically, if you take like a, a cup, maybe like a Red Solo cup, and you imagine that it has some holes in it, right? Like a manuscript has mistakes in it, okay? And so the cup won't really hold water very well because it has maybe some mistakes in it. But what happens if you take another cup that has holes in it, maybe in some other areas, and you put it on top of it? It's a little more watertight. But what happens if you take five thousand eight hundred of those and you stack them up on top of each other? You'd have an unbelievably tall vessel, but a very watertight, <laughs> very watertight cup. The way uh, it's been phrased, and I thought this was good. Some people want to say like, oh, we only have 990 pieces out of a thousand. If a thousand is like the full Bible. This is actually wrong. We have 1,010 pieces out of the thousand. The challenge sometimes comes where we're not entirely sure which specific word would fit where but we do have the original. We're just not entirely sure in some very, very minute instances. But even in those minute instances, there are no significant changes to any major doctrine or book, and even the the biggest skeptics would acknowledge this. Even in the very minute changes, there are no significant changes to any major doctrine or book. But I'm thankful to God that by His Spirit throughout millenniums, He has kept His Word. Now, there are two primary questions uh, that further questions that people may have on this. One is a question from analogy. I've heard this a couple of times. They would say, you guys know the game telephone? Okay, so they would say, well, this is a problem because the way the Bible was copied was kind of like the game of telephone, right? So the game of telephone, I would speak to Blaze and then the message, he would speak to Pastor Brandon and then to Sawyer to Nathan. And by the time it goes all the way through, right, 2,000 years later, he's the original guy, the message would be all messed up. So they would say, that's what it's like. It's like the game of telephone. Therefore, it's getting up. But this analogy is incredibly broken. Number one, actually, what would be more accurate is if I'm the original manuscript, I would not just speak to Blaze, but I would speak to the first three rows. Maybe the first four rows. Okay. Then the message is way more obvious and way more clearly would be passed, passed on. Okay. And if someone has a, hears something from one of them, you can go and check with the other 20 to find out whether or not it was true. Secondly, the analogy breaks down because in the game of telephone, it's actually more funny if you make mistakes. Whereas when people were copying the Bible, they had strong needs to make sure it was accurate, right? So even, even the motivation. And then finally, it was written, right? The scriptures were written. It's not like we're whispering in someone's ear. So again, I just heard this analogy. I think it's really bad. And uh, don't accept it if someone tells it to you. Second main question, um, this is an issue that has been raised, a guy, really f- famous book, it's called The Da Vinci Code, by a guy named Dan, Brand, Fa- Dan, Dan Brown, very famous book, very famous movie, and had a really lot of major mistakes in it. But essentially, what you'll hear, even maybe with people that you talk with, is there's this belief, well, apparently there was this overzealous monk who during the time of Constantine made some changes in the Bible, and those, bi- those changes have passed down through the different manuscripts all the way to where we are today, and now we just have a change made in our Bibles by some overzealous monk. Now you go, well, what, why would an overzealous monk change something? Well, maybe the monk would be reading in a manuscript, and it would say something challenging like, the sun doesn't know the time or the place. And he would go, huh, that can't be what he would have said. Right? That seems confusing to me. So these people would be saying, maybe he changed that. Right, So maybe he just quickly changed something because he thought, that can't be what it said. So this is the argument. But here's the problem with that. And uh, again, I'm going to summarize a response to that that I heard by a guy named Vodibacham which I just thought was really excellent. So here's the response that we would give to that. So the first problem is the overzealous monk, if he were to change one of those manuscripts, okay, would have to find the thousands of other Greek manuscripts at the time, steal all of those, change all of those, cover his ink work, and then return them. Okay, that's that's not going to happen. But not only that, not only would he have to do that, but Jesus also commanded his church to make disciples of all the nations. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he pointed out that one of the problems with other nations is that they speak other languages. And they all translated the Bible as well, primarily into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So we have thousands of manuscripts in Syriac, Latin, and Coptic as well from the first couple centuries. So what this zealous monk would have to do is not only steal the 6,000 Greek manuscripts, make all the changes, hide his inkwork, and then return all of them as well. He would also have to learn how to lie in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin make all these changes in these as well and then return them to their original place. But then he goes even further Oh, and he would ask to match the lies in Greek which is apparently hard to do. But then he goes even further you have the problem of the early church fathers. So the early church fathers they're basically the early theologians and pastors of the church and they wrote a lot on the scriptures. They liked to write commentaries and uh, they had this interesting habit of quoting the scriptures. Which is really great. In their letters. By one measurement, it has been said that we could create up to within 11 verses of the entire New Testament from within the writings of the early church founders. So let's back that up again. So for this overzealous monk to be able to make this change, what he would have to do is find all the Greek manuscripts, change all of those, hide his inkwork, steal them, and then return them. He would then have to learn to lie in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, make all those changes. And then he would have to find all the writings of the early church fathers and all their commentaries on those specific verses and make all those changes as well. All in the process of living 300 years to get this done. In a word, what I'm really just trying to say here, it's really hard to mess with this book. Okay? The God of the universe uh, has kept his word and I want you to find a great confidence in that. Our God has kept this book for you to be read. And for you to be changed, I hope you find a great comfort. Comfort in that he has kept his word for for us throughout the ages. There's some other things I didn't even get into, even like in comparison to other ancient works. It's not even close how foundational the uh, the Bible is. The next closest, I believe, is Homer's Iliad, which has which the, the latest, the closest to when it was originally written was 1,400 years after it was originally written, and um, they only have a couple hundred of those. So, yeah, it's not even close. But again, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God It's profitable for doctrine reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of it is profitable. We have it. God has perverted, it, preserved it. And I want you to know that you can trust the words of this book. You can trust what it tells you and its promises. You can trust what it tells you about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may you thank him for it, read it, share it with others, and live by it. Maybe in applying this, I want to just conclude with reading some promises from this word. This is really the main application I want you to have just as you hear these promises that you go, thank you for keeping this book for us and for writing it. So let me just read it for you. I'll conclude with this and then we'll have some corporate prayer. Hear the word of God. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. If we confess with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of sins, according to the riches of his grace. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. This is the record that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. If a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. Whatever you pray in my name, believing you will receive. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, them who are called according to his purpose. Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. He will hear my voice. But they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. I love them that love me. And those that seek me early shall find me. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. Finally, the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, that your holy spirit, your whole spirit and soul and body will be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Amen.